Good morning, church. Good to see everybody this morning. So please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, part 1. It's going to be uh, two parts to get through this text, but uh, the title of part 1 is Adulterers at Heart. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, and... uh, Once you're there, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. This is what our Lord Jesus says. He says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much as we come before you this morning. We pray that you would be with us and that you would bless us as we go through your word. We pray that you would grant us illumination through the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that you would write your word on our heart, Lord, that we would live in accordance with it, Lord. Please uh, convict us where we need it, encourage us where we need it, just edify us, make us more like our Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray if there's anybody that doesn't know you, that they'll hear your word, be convicted, and come to you for salvation, Lord. We beg you that. We pray in everything that you would get all the glory, and please remove me as much as possible from this, God. And it's all in Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen. Please have a seat. In last week's text, Jesus gave a definitive answer to a very important question. When does something become a sin? Only after we do it or before we do it, but while we're thinking about it? Which is it? Well, Jesus made it clear. It becomes a sin as soon as it's in our hearts. That's when it becomes a sin. What is in our hearts is the root of all of our actions. When people claim to have a good heart inside, like I have a good heart, you just got to look at me inside, they usually say that when they're being confronted for something bad they did. But the point is, it's baloney, because the bad things that we do come from the heart. So you can't point to your bad things and say, but I have a good heart. Doesn't work. It's not biblical. Well, Jesus is going to continue this line of thought this morning, but in our text, he's going to address one of the most destructive things lurking in our hearts. Adultery. In 2003, the Barna Research Group published that 60% of Americans think that sexual fantasies are appropriate, including pornography. 42% think that adultery is not wrong. Now, I'm sure the numbers have gone up because that was 20 years ago, but I don't want you to miss what, what I said there. More than half, fortunately, still thought that adultery was wrong. But way more than half thought that fantasies, adulterous fantasies, were okay. You see the disconnect? Well, adultery would be wrong, but fantasizing about it, looking at pornography, that wouldn't be wrong. 
And I would assume that the Christians who were polled would say both are wrong. But at the end of the day, how many Christians look at pornography regularly? How many indulge the fantasies of the mind? How many then console themselves by saying, well, at least I'm not committing adultery? We must not console ourselves over this. In our text this morning, Jesus addresses the plague of adultery. And what he shows us is that one does not need to go all the way to adultery to break the seventh commandment. In fact, here is the point of the text. It's this. Lust and unbiblical divorce violate the seventh commandment. Lust and unbiblical divorce violate the second commandment or seventh commandment. Excuse me. Both lead to adultery. Both are a form of adultery. In verses 27 through 30, Jesus deals with lust. And then in verses 31 and 32, he deals with unbiblical divorce. Both of these texts go together because they both deal with the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. But there's a lot to cover. And so this will be a two-parter. This morning, we will look specifically at what Jesus says about lust. And then next time, we'll see what he says about divorce and remarriage. And what I'm hoping we'll see this morning is that lust most certainly violates the seventh commandment. Now, as we prepare to move into our text, let me quickly remind us of where we are in Matthew. In the beginning of the chapter, Jesus began the most famous sermon in all of history, the Sermon on the Mount. No speech of man, no utterance of sages, no rallying cry of a general, nor any story ever produced by an artist. No communication in all of history is as powerful as the Sermon on the Mount. The impact of it has transformed lives for two millennia. Now, at the heart of it, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching us first. He's teaching his disciples what it means to be a human being that flourishes in this world and the next. He shows us what it looks like to be wise and righteous. He paints for us a picture of the life that pleases God. And as Jesus is doing all this, as he's teaching this, there's also multitudes of others that are listening in. So at the same time he's instructing his disciples, he's inviting anyone who has ears to hear to receive his teaching and become his disciple. Simply put, He opened this sermon up with a bang by giving us eight profound statements called Beatitudes. They frame the rest of the sermon. We'll see them littered throughout it. He then moved from there into the body. And he began the body by telling us that we are called to be salt and light. Which means as salt, we flavor and preserve that which is good. We do so by living our lives faithfully in accordance with the Bible. And as we do that, we will also function as light that illuminates the darkness. Through our good deeds, we will point to the one true God, and all the world will see him, and that will bring him glory. Now, Jesus made us salt and light. You don't do anything to become salt and light. He makes you salt and light. But where do we learn to live like salt and light? We learn from the law of Moses in the Old Testament. Jesus made it clear that he did not come to abolish it, but he says to fulfill it. He shows us what it means. He shows us how to keep it in a way that was unimaginable before he came. In fact, he tells us that, or he calls us to live in such a way that our righteousness exceedingly surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, they were the religious experts of their day. They were the elite And yet the Lord was not impressed. He says, we are called to something greater. 
Well, last week, he then began to show us what this looks like. Now, I mentioned chapter 5, verse 40, or chapter 5, verse 21, all the way to verse 48, has Jesus picking six Old Testament commandments. He quotes them. He then tells us their true meaning, their true intent. He gets to the heart, and then he gives practical examples of them in the real world. Real world. By him doing it this way, he's teaching us how to read Scripture and how to live Scripture. So don't only pay attention to what he says. Pay attention to his method and how he approaches the Scripture. If we learn from him, we will live in a way that demonstrates a greater righteousness than the religious experts. So in our text last week, which was verses 21 to 26, Jesus began with the sixth commandment, do not murder. And he showed us that it's more than just not killing people. Anger, hatred, jealousy, and things like that are thoughts of the heart. They come from the inner person, and they are the root of murder. So when you harbor these thoughts and feelings, Jesus is saying you have already broken the sixth commandment. And what that shows us and teaches us is that God does not only judge us for our sinful actions, but he will also hold us to account for all of our sinful thoughts. The thoughts are the source of the actions. Furthermore, with his practical examples of application, Jesus then showed us one more thing. He showed us that keeping the commandment does not only involve staying away from what's prohibited, meaning it doesn't only call us to stay away from what's evil, whether in thought or deed. Keeping the command at the exact same time requires the righteous opposite of what's prohibited. That means rather than anger, hatred, and jealousy, we are to show people mercy, love, and generosity. Those should be the postures of our heart, and then they should lead to outward actions that demonstrate it. Only then do we keep the sixth commandment. Well, what Jesus taught us about murder, he's, going to te- he's teaching us about every command. There, in any command you find in the Bible, there is an action that is either prohibited, meaning it's forbidden, or an action that's commanded, meaning you're supposed to do it. But underneath that action, whether it's prohibited or commanded, there's always a root that goes down to the heart. And that is where our obedience needs to start. If there's no root of sin, there won't be a fruit of sin, right? And if there's no root of righteousness, then there won't be the fruit of righteousness, What that means is we need to win the battle with sin at the level of our heart. That is what he's teaching us. And as we battle there with the help of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, each other in the church, then we will increasingly live lives that are exceedingly more righteous than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So, with all that said, we can now turn to the next two Old Testament laws that Jesus brings up. He brings up two laws but both address one topic, adultery, the seventh commandment. In both cases, Jesus will follow the same pattern. He'll quote the law. He'll give the true intent or the meaning that goes down to the heart. And then he'll give us the practical application. Now, this morning, we only have time to get through the first one of them. And as I said, the first one we're going to cover is lust. Okay, we'll cover lust. And so we're going to look at verses 27 through 30. Let's start with verse 27. Jesus quotes the commandment. He says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now, here he is quoting Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. Israel has heard this command forever, for their whole history. 
First time they heard it was from God's mouth himself, from Mount Sinai, as he thundered it. And then it was repeated by Moses to the next generation 40 years later in Deuteronomy. And then it was repeated in every generation after because the prophets keep bringing it up again and again. And in the day of Christ, it was proclaimed in the synagogues by the religious teachers. What was proclaimed? Real simple. Do not commit adultery. This is the commandment. So I suppose we need to ask, let's just get it out on the table. What is adultery? Well, a simple definition is this. If you are married and you have conjugal relations with someone else, whether they are married or not, you have committed adultery. If you are not married, yet you have conjugal relations with someone who is married, you also have committed adultery. Now, in the Old Testament, the focus was on, often on the fact that it's another man's wife. The sin is against God first, but then it's against the man whose wife you've stolen or you've slept with. The fact that the 10th commandment tells you not to covet your neighbor's wife adds to that emphasis. It is his wife. Now look, the reverse is also certainly true. A woman must not covet her neighbor's husband. A woman must not sin against God and against the woman whose husband she is sleeping with. So, Adultery goes both ways. Now, most people in most places of the world agree that adultery is wrong. It is a great act of betrayal. It destroys families. It drastically affects kids. But even with that realization, in our culture, more and more people are admitting that they have committed adultery. And sadly, the numbers have increased among those who call themselves Christians. This is an egregious sin. It should never happen. Now, why? Why is adultery so bad? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to step away from the text for just a moment to quickly, and I promise it'll be quick, uh, to give you a broader biblical theology of marriage, because then that is why you'll understand why adultery is so bad. The Bible begins with a marriage, and it ends with a marriage. It begins with God making Adam and Eve married, and it ends with Jesus forever being united with his church as a groom is united with a bride. Now, a lot of stuff happens between the beginning and the end of the Bible, and quite frankly, a lot of bad things happen. Sin, death, the curse, and the proliferation of those things throughout the whole world. But from the beginning, God has been on a rescue mission to save his people from this. And one of the chief pictures or images or metaphors, if you want to call it that, one of the chief pictures he uses to show us what redemption looks like is marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 32 and 33, clearly teaches that marriage from the beginning has been a picture or an object lesson of the gospel. The husband leaves his family to what? Pursue his bride. Christ left the throne room of heaven to pursue his bride, the church. The husband holds fast to his wife in unity and becomes one flesh with her. Jesus Christ laid down his life for the church, cleansing her from all sin and impurity. And then he unites himself to the church in such a complete way that when the father looks at us, he sees the son, right? That is the only reason any of us will ever be saved. So the oneness of a husband and wife is meant to be a universal gospel tract, that God built into creation itself that everyone everywhere can see. That way, all of mankind would have a witness of the gospel. The gospel is the, the greatest love story that's ever been told. 
That the God-man Jesus Christ left heaven to save his church, his bride. And marriage paints a picture of this. So, if that's what marriage does and what marriage is, adultery destroys that picture. It tears the gospel tract in half. Christ would never be unfaithful to his church. And his church, his true church, those who are really saved, would never chase after a different savior. But adultery is just that, isn't it? It's if a man's unfaithful to his wife, it paints a wicked picture of Christ leaving his church for another bride. And if a wife cheats on her husband, it paints the despicable picture of the church leaving its Messiah for something else. So God has built into the most fundamental and basic human relationship a perfect picture of the gospel. Why? So that wherever we go and preach the gospel, the preacher could say God's relationship to humanity and to those he's saving is like marriage. And then they could be like, oh, oh, and it all makes sense to them. They're like, wow, what amazing God, what unfathomable love. But with adultery being rampant, it destroys that gospel tract. When you try to point to marriage as an analogy of God's love, the world now sees torn gospel tracts everywhere. And it should not be this way. So, of course, in the law, God commands, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus then quotes it here. And it's true. There is never, and I'm going to say that again, there is never a justified reason to commit adultery. Sometimes people say, but you don't understand my situation. I don't have to. Adultery is wrong. How, much, how big of a percent of the time? A hundred percent of the time. And everyone in Jesus' audience would agree with this. So if they all would have agreed with this, why is he bringing it up? Well, remember, he is showing us what it looks like to live with the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the scribes. So even if they might agree with what he's saying, there's something in their lives that are missing the mark. And he's showing us what it looks like to hit the mark. Just like everyone would agree that we shouldn't murder, they're going to agree we shouldn't commit adultery. But just like Jesus showed murder starts in the heart, and that's how you break the sixth commandment, he's going to show the exact same thing with the seventh commandment. So that then brings us to verse 28, if you'll look at it. Well, he begins with his next, but I tell you statement. You've heard it said, but I tell you. Now, remember what I said last week. Nobody talks this way. Nobody quotes the word of God and then says, but I tell you. Not Moses, not the prophets, not the rabbis, but Jesus does. Jesus talks this way because he's the Messiah. And one of the missions of the Messiah was to show God's people the deepest understanding of the law. Everyone else, pastors included, we only get to quote the law and tell you what we think it means. And we could show you that it means what we think it means. But the Messiah, being God in the flesh... He could quote the law, and then he could speak an interpretation of it that has the same, if not greater, authority than the words of the law itself. Only God can do that. Only the God-man could do that. This is what the Messiah was called to do. So Jesus is just doing what we would expect the Messiah to do. So with that in mind, let's look at what he says in verse 28. After saying, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, he then says, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, if you think the commandment is only about physical adultery, the act of adultery, then you miss the point. At the end of the day, remember, what is adultery? It is the intentional violation of the covenant of marriage, either of your own marriage or your neighbor's marriage or both. And it is a very specific kind of violation. 
I'm going to just be real. I'm going to say it clearly. It is adultery is to have sex with someone else's spouse. That's what it is. Or someone that's not your spouse. And God was very clear in Genesis 2.24 about the marital union. In Genesis 2.24, he says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay, they become one flesh. The one flesh is the result of the sexual union. It's the physical act that consummates a marriage and unites them. It's what makes it official. And just so no one tries to go all platonic on us and find a higher meaning, well, the oneness, the one flesh actually refers to something greater than the sexual union. It doesn't. Look at what, how Paul describes sleeping with the prostitute in 1 Corinthians 6.16. He says, don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the scripture says the two will become one flesh. So what does it mean for two to become one flesh? It's very clear there. That's why fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, is so bad. It attempts the one flesh union without marriage. But marriage is the only context in which this union should ever happen. And again, you're tearing the gospel tract in half when you have it in the wrong context. But again, my point this morning isn't to talk about fornication. It's to take what Paul's saying about that and apply it to adultery. If you are married to someone, but you go and have conjugal relations with someone else, you have become one flesh with that person, even though you are one flesh with your spouse. That is what you are doing there. You have literally torn to pieces the one flesh union with your spouse. And you have also torn apart the one flesh union of your neighbor's spouse. If it's your neighbor's spouse that you're doing this with. In this case, you are an adulterer a destroyer of the one flesh union by stealing a different one flesh scenario. That's what it is. Okay, so what is the act of adultery? It's the intentional violation of the marriage covenant. And I say all that to get to now this point. Do you think it began with the act? Did adultery itself begin with the act? When we looked at murder last week, did it begin with the act of murder itself? No, it began with thoughts of anger and hatred, thoughts that seek the harm of life. Well, likewise, adultery begins with thoughts, thoughts that seek the harm of your marriage and or someone else's marriage. It always begins in the thoughts. It just does. Like murder, adultery never just happens. It begins with lust. What does Jesus say again? Let's look at it again. Verse 28, he says, but I tell you, Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the Greek is pretty specific here. It does not just mean to look lustfully. I don't like the way this is translated here. It actually means to look with the plan or intention to lust. In the Greek, I'm not going to bog you down, but it's a preposition with an infinitive that always means to do something with the intention of something else. Now, that might seem minor, but it's not. And here's why. Jesus is not talking about a man seeing a pretty woman or a woman seeing a a handsome man and just being stunned for a a moment by their looks. Honestly, that's unavoidable unless you pluck your eyes out, right? What he's talking about is after you've seen the person, if you then conspire to look further at them and fantasize about sex. That is what it means in the Greek. You're looking at them with the intent to fantasize, and you start fantasizing. 
Okay, so this isn't, see, the, 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 the word looks in Greek, if he says when you look, it is a present participle, which paints the picture of a continuous gazing. It's not just people watching. It's not admiration. It is continuous looking with the intention of lust. And let me be clear, what is lust? The word lust in the Greek is just the word for desire, epithumia. If it's a good desire, then you just call it desire. If it's for something bad, it's called lust. But what is the desire here? What is the bad desire? This other person. Now, remember the context. What's Jesus talking about here? He is getting to the heart of adultery. What is adultery? Sex. Well, the desire for that adultery then is in the heart. When he's talking about looking with the intent to lust... He is talking about looking with intent to fantasize about adultery. That is what he's talking about here. Now, some commentators try to narrow it because they want to get people off the hook. They believe that the Greek implies that it's looking with the intent to lust actually means constructing a plan. Like if you look and then you come up with a plan to make this happen, that's when it's adultery in the heart. So to them, it's the fantasy is not the problem. It's the actual plan. But there's nothing in the text that talks about a plan here. All these guys are doing is trying to get people off the hook of their fantasies. No, what Jesus is making clear is it's the sexual desire itself that is the sin. And looking with the intent or plan to desire means to look with the goal of imagining adultery. Now, others will argue that Jesus is saying, like when he says gazing at her to cause her to commit adultery, or they're saying, when, how do I word this? That you're looking at the person to get them to lust. Right? That's what he's talking about. And that's adultery in the heart. You're putting adultery in this other person's heart. So it's kind of like you make eye contact in order to get the person to blush. You're doing this on purpose so that you can then get those thoughts into their head. And I'll be honest, the Greek makes that possible. But I'm telling you, if we're comparing this to what he says about murder and everything else here, he's talking about your heart, not the other person's. Okay, context is what decides on that. Okay, so Jesus... At this point, he is saying that you have fantasized by somebody who's married to someone else, or maybe they're not, but you're married. The point is that fantasy, the result is the same. You have committed adultery in your heart. You have broke the seventh commandment. God sees it. He is not pleased with it. And look, just like with anger, those lustful thoughts, they escalate, okay, just like the angry thoughts did. At first, you might think you see somebody that is really attractive, and now you have these fantasies, and you say, man, I wish I wasn't married, because then I could have that. And, and then it progresses. Well, I wish she wasn't married. Uh, and then it escalates from there. Well, what I imagine is just in my own mind, in my own heart, that doesn't hurt anybody else. And then it escalates. You know what? My wife's been nagging me lately, and I'm pretty sure her husband neglects her. Maybe we just married the wrong people. Again, it just keeps escalating. And then it can move into, you know what? I'll go introduce myself. A handshake never hurt anybody. And then it escalates from there. What's wrong with a cup of coffee? Coffee's not adultery. What are you talking about? Why are you looking at me like that, right? And it just keeps escalating. And then eventually you climb the ladder step by step by step, and then you find that you are there, committing the very act of adultery. This reminds me of the false teachers that Peter, the Apostle Peter, condemns in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. Look at how he describes them. He says, they have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. Children under a curse. 
Now, when you think about the order that Peter gives there, first he starts with their eyes being filled with adultery. They see and they want. That's what Jesus is talking about here. But then Peter's telling us how it escalates. They start looking for the sin. In fact, he says they never stop looking. And then it escalates. They find their targets. Unstable people who are easy targets to seduce. And they progress up the ladder until they're at the very act of adultery. But don't miss the point. If you are on, if you're in the stage of lustful thoughts, you might be on the bottom step of the ladder, but you're still on the ladder. And that's the point. You have violated the second commandment, even being on the bottom rung of that ladder. Now, last week, I mentioned that King David didn't just wake up and say, who could I murder today? And likewise, he didn't wake up saying this is a great day for adultery. He just didn't do that. That's not how it happened. But I will tell you, there were certain factors that made it easy for him to fall into this. He was in the wrong place. He should have been with his troops in battle. Instead, he stayed home by himself when most of his accountability partners or pals were far away. And he's the king. Who can say no to the command of a king? So without accountability and with the power to seize what he wants, there was a recipe for disaster. Furthermore, as the king, his palace was the highest building in Jerusalem. People apparently built their baths on their roofs for privacy. People can't see you there. Well, David can because his roof is higher than all the rest. People would pick the evening to bathe because that's when it's cooler and they think it'd be more private. Well, if you were to read 2 Samuel 11:2, it tells us exactly when David was strolling around on his roof in the evening time when the people would normally be found taking baths on their roof. He's, he's moving in a direction that is going to lead to this temptation. He's not being wise. And then he just happens to see a beautiful woman bathing. Now, He could have realized everything he'd been doing brought him to this point, and he was wrong. He could have turned his head, and he could have walked away. But he gazed with the intent to lust. And lust is exactly what he did. And of course, he's fantasizing about it because it's going to come to fruition after this. So the next step, instead of walking away, he lusts. Then instead of stopping that and repenting, he goes to his servants. Whose woman is this? Or what woman is this? And then they say, this is your, your loyal servant, Uriah the Hittite's wife. Now, that should have made him jump off the ladder right there like, oh, man, I went too far in my thoughts. But he doesn't. He was captivated. So he climbs the ladder higher. Bring her to me. And then, of course, the adultery happened. And then it later leads to murder. So my point is we could see how it progressed from lust to adultery. It didn't, the adultery didn't just happen in a vacuum. It happened because David gazed with the intent to lust. And Jesus is telling us it is a sin The moment you do that, you have broken the heart and the intention of the seventh commandment at that moment. Your imagination has betrayed your spouse. Your imagination has betrayed your neighbor. Furthermore, you've betrayed your God, which is worse than even all of that. Your heart, it might be invisible to everybody else, but your heart has ripped that gospel tract of your marriage in half in that moment. Additionally, you have turned a person made in the image of God into a sex object in your mind. You've objectified a human being. You have mentally turned a dignified image bearer into an undignified commodity that is simply providing a service to your flesh. It is evil. It is evil. Now, there were some, a minority of people, among the religious elites that would disagree with Jesus and claim that, hey, it's not a violation of the seventh commandment if it's just thoughts. 
There's one argument in the Mishnah, which is uh, written by the rabbis later, but it depicts oral arguments from Jesus' time. There's one argument made by, by one rabbi that it's only a sin if you actually commit adultery. But most of the Jewish teachers would have agreed with Jesus. There is far more literature from the time, both stuff written in the intertestamental things, the things written between the Old and New Testaments, as well as the rabbinic literature, that would agree with Jesus that adultery or lust in the heart is adultery in the heart. There were even Greek and Roman philosophers, pagans, that understood this. Seneca wrote that if you lust in your heart, it's adultery in your heart. And so, yeah, a lot of people agreed with what Jesus is saying here. Okay, so where he's going to get them isn't on this. He's going to get them on divorce because whether we're talking about the Pharisees or the Roman Greco philosophers, they divorced and remarried on a whim as many times as they wanted a new partner. And so he's going to hit them there. That's how they were committing a sanctified adultery, but it was adultery nevertheless. You don't need to lust in your heart if you could divorce in an instant and marry the person who captured your, your eyes. You can marry them the next day and then say, hey, I'm not committing adultery. Jesus is saying, yes, you are. That's why these two teachings go together. But I'll have to hit that one next time. My point is most folks would agree with him on this. Now, he's still going to tell us what to do in light of the lust of our heart. And the next time he'll hit the, the loophole they were using. But as far as his point about lust in the heart, he's interpreting the seventh commandment through the lens or the eye of the tenth commandment. The tenth commandment says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, do not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. To covet your neighbor's wife is to lust for her in your heart. That's what it means. So in the act, you're not only violating the 10th commandment, you're also violating the seventh. You're, you're breaking two of them. And I would dare say you're violating the first. You're putting something before God. You're, and so the, the bottom line is you're committing adultery in the heart. Now, I've, I've heard people try to say, well, well, I wasn't lusting over my neighbor's wife. I covet my neighbor's wife or husband or whatever because of just how nice the person is. I, I like their personality, and it has nothing to do with, with sexual intimacy. Well, even if that were true, and I think you are lying to yourself, but even if that were true, it's still a Tenth Commandment violation to covet your neighbor's spouse. And I, again, that'll be a first uh, commandment violation as well. But I seriously doubt that you could covet someone else's spouse without the thoughts also turning to lust. So let's not kid ourselves. And, and, and that is the lens through how Christ is telling us to look at this. Now, last week I explained that the first and tenth commandments are all about the heart. And then sandwiched in between them are all the commandments about action. And since the commandments about action are surrounded by the commandments concerning the heart, they were always meant to be read the way that Jesus is teaching them here. It's not just about the action. It's about the thoughts of the heart that lead to the action. And Jesus will make it very clear later when he's arguing with people in Matthew, he'll make it very clear that it's the, the thoughts of the heart that make us unclean. Just to, to show that now, Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, he says, For from the heart come evil thoughts, Murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. Where do all these things come from? He says the heart. They all come from the heart. Therefore, it is not good enough to only deal with our external action, as important as that is. 
Meaning, if let's say somebody never commits adultery because they're too shy to go and approach the person they're fantasizing about. So they'll say, yeah, I never committed adultery, but your heart is still committing it every day. And that breaks the commandment. That dishonors God. That betrays your marriage. So don't just focus on the external. Attack this sin at its source. That's what Jesus is saying. Go after the heart. King Solomon, although I don't think he followed his own advice too well, but King Solomon advises his son in Proverbs 6.25. He says, don't lust in your heart for her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyelashes. Notice where he starts, though. Don't lust in your heart. Don't lust in your heart because if you do, then you'll be captivated. So deal with this at the heart level. And we'll be covering that shortly. I think it's fair to see that breaking the seventh commandment, though, and this is something just I want to be candid about, this is something that's really easy to do. I think we all will struggle with this in in some way or another. It's very easy, just like unjustified anger. And just like anger, this kind of lust is invisible. Not everybody can see it. Only God can. And of course, you know it's there. But it is an invisible way that we break the word of God. And it can lead to worse things. And so we need to attack this thing right where it's at, the heart. So how do we do that? What should we do about this? How do we do it? If, if, if we're being real, as I said, just like most of us deal with anger, most of us are dealing with this. And so remember what I pointed out last time. By Jesus teaching us here, he reads the law, he gives you the meaning of it, and then he gives you practical advice. So he is about to give us practical advice. We're going to see him tell us in verses 29 and 30 exactly how to fight this battle. Now, what he says is going to seem shocking at first glance. Look at verse 29. Jesus declares this. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, before we get into exactly what he means there, let me just give you an overarching point of it. When it comes to the sin of lust, Jesus is telling us to get radical about battling it. This is a fight for our lives. It is a fight for our soul. And we need to act like it. When we act nonchalant about this, it is to our own peril. So if anything else, before you know what he's really getting at here, know that he is telling you there's an urgency to this. Fight this like it matters. Be radical about it. So what is he getting at here? Is he commanding self-mutilation? No. Self-mutilation is a sin. Jesus, obviously, is the Son of God, knows that. So what is happening here is something called hyperbole. What is hyperbole? Hyperbole is when you purposefully exaggerate something to a ridiculous degree in order to emphasize a point. And people will get the point because of the ridiculousness of the exaggeration. For example, think of this one. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, no big camel is going to fit through this tiny little hole in a needle. Jesus is creating an absurd image for you to picture so that you could understand the point. What's the point? Apart from divine intervention, these people in love with this world's possessions are not going to be saved. It takes divine intervention. That's what he's saying. Well, this is another example of hyperbole. And unfortunately, one of the most famous church fathers in the early church period did not understand this when he was a young adult. His name was Origen. You may have heard of him. And he was struggling with lust. He read this passage, and then he castrated himself. 
There was no going back from that. Now, later, he used this event as the reason for why we should interpret Scripture allegorically, because in his mind, it was a literal reading that gave him a high-pitched singing voice for the rest of his life. Okay? But, listen, allegory. I know that was bad, but I couldn't resist. Allegory. I should have resisted. It was in the heart. Um, (laughs) Allegory is not the answer. Allegory is not the answer. A truly literal interpretation takes into account hyperbole and metaphor. In other words, a literal interpretation is like, oh, he's literally using hyperbole, so I know I'm not supposed to take it literally. I'm supposed to take the point of what he's saying. And that will be our approach here. So again, looking at what he says, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, we do know lust begins in part with what you see. So of course he's going to start with the eye. And his his point is to attack this at its root. Get rid of whatever it is that is causing you to sin. Now, he does not literally mean to take out your right eye. First, you'd still have your left eye, and you could lust with your left eye. And then second, if you ripped out both of your eyes, or if you ripped out both my eyes, I don't care who you are, you still have your thoughts and your memory. You have the eye of your mind, where you could remember every bad thing you've seen, and you could be creative enough to just make up new stuff in your mind. So even if you lose your eyes, that doesn't, that doesn't really get to the, the heart of this. So gouging out an eye won't solve the problem. That's why he begins with the word if. He's not saying it's your right eye that does this. He's making a point. If it was your right eye, then you get rid of it. But it's not actually your eye causing you to sin. Because even if you looked at an attractive person for one second and you saw them with your eyes, you could turn away. You could say, I'm not going to stare. I'm not going to you know, uh, go down this, this, this rabbit hole. You could focus your mind on other things. Even just talking about the eyes for a moment, John Piper mentioned that if you see something for less than two seconds, you most likely will not remember it. I tested this like 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, but we went to Vegas and you know, there's illicit images everywhere if you're walking the strip. And so, I mean, I was just like, I didn't look, I mean, yeah, I probably looked crazy, but the fact is, I don't remember anything I saw there. I'm like, old man Piper got this one right. You know, I wanted to test it, and so it was true. And so what that shows me is it's a matter of my will, not my eyes. If I wanted to look at something for more than two seconds so I could remember it and think about it, it's not an eye problem, it's a problem of the heart. But if I was determined not to look with an intention to lust, then I didn't give myself the opportunity how? By using those same eyes to look at something else, something more, more worthy. And so Jesus' point is whatever it is that's causing you to sin, that's what you must be rid of. Why? He gives you the reason. Again, you see the word for, so he's, he's giving you the reason. He says for, it is, like why should I get rid of this? He says for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Again, hyper, this is hyperbolic. When we get resurrected, the Bible makes it clear you're not going to still have missing body parts. Like if somebody plucks out your eye, they're like, ha you're going to be wearing a patch for all eternity, buddy. It doesn't work that way. When you get resurrected, you're going to have your eyes back. So what he's getting at here isn't that you're going to go into heaven maimed. His point is that there is nothing in this world worth you holding on to that's actually going to condemn you to hell. If you choose any sin over God for your whole life and you are unwilling to let it go, you refuse to obey him, God, I I know I say I believe in you, but I can't give this up and I won't, then you don't know him. 
You don't know him because he gives you the power to break those chains. Now, I understand there are seasons where we struggle, and I'm not removing that at all. I'm talking about the person who says, I'm not going to let this go, and they never let it go. Jesus is saying, whatever it is that's causing you to sin, get rid of it because it is not worth it. Nothing is worth more than God. Nothing is worth more than our relationship with him. Now, he essentially makes the same point in verse 30. He says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So he says the same thing. And he's picking the eyes and the hand because with adultery, it begins with the look and it culminates with reaching out with your hand to take what doesn't belong to you, to take the forbidden person. Jesus picks the right eye and the right hand because in the culture of that time, these were considered the most valuable parts of your body, especially the right hand. They were used, the hand was useful for work. If you lost your right hand, your life would be greatly inconvenienced. But again, that's his point. Jesus is saying, I don't care how valuable you think that something is. I don't care how much harder it's going to make your life to get rid of this. He's saying, listen to me. It is not worth hell. So be rid of it. And man, we come up with so much stuff. I could imagine the excuses that people would have said. And the only reason I can imagine them is I've heard a lot of them as a biblical counselor. So I could picture back then some people saying, look, Jesus, I'm a stone cutter. How can I make a living without my hand? Again, assuming that he's being literal here. But I can imagine the Lord saying, tell me this. Paying your bills for 30 years or an eternity in hell. And by the way, there's other ways you could pay your bills. But do you need your hand more than you need eternal life? That's ultimately what he's getting at. I can picture somebody else. But Lord, I'm an artist. How can I paint if I pluck out my eyes? Well, what good are your paintings if you're in hell? Again, the calculus doesn't change. The calculus doesn't change here. The moral calculus is the same. The thing that you say that you need, this thing that you've now made into a slave of sin, you've made it your means to get the sin, you've made it the very thing to cause your sin, Jesus is saying, whatever good you once got from this, it's void. Until you get rid of it, you're going to keep using it to sin. So what do you love more, the sin or God? And by the way, just... Make this clear, this principle does not only apply to sexual sin. Jesus will bring up the same exaggerated example about the eye and the hand, and he'll even add your foot. And he'll do that in Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, and the context there is not sexual sin. Okay, so his point is, whatever in your life continuously renders you incapable of repenting as long as it's there, you got to be rid of that thing. And pay attention to what I said. If you're able to repent without getting rid of it, then you don't have to get rid of it. But if you just can't repent, as long as that thing's there, you got to get rid of it. That's the point. And it's going to be different for every person. So the examples I'm going to be giving in a, in a moment aren't meant to set rules that we all have to follow. It's for you to take an inventory of yourself and figure out what you need to do to, to keep this commandment. So let's take Jesus's practical advice and apply it to real life situations we might face. Let's say, for example, you're tempted by the people you work with to where you are constantly thinking romantic thoughts about them. And, and not only that, I mean, you're in their, their presence, you're in their life, you're having conversations, flirting's happening. And as long as you're there, you're going to keep doing that? Then look, 
You, you need to find a different job. And you might say, yeah, but I did this at the last job too. And the one before that, it's like, okay, well, then you need the type of job where you work from home because you got a problem right now and you're not addressing your heart. So work from home or work in a field where you're not in an office with the same people every day. But I have to have my career. I put so much time into this. Really? You can't make money in a way that will remove the temptation, especially in a free market like ours? Listen, no job is, is worth it. Is it really worth the sin? No. Is it worth being an adulterer in your heart? No. Is it worth creeping ever closer to the physical adultery that's actually going to ruin your marriage? No. Now, maybe the issue's not a job. That would only be for the people where that's the issue. Maybe it's certain friends you have. Perhaps they try to pressure you to join them in their sins. This is usually what happens to folks who are a little younger. Uh, maybe they put you in compromising situations. Maybe they send illicit pictures to you and you tell them to stop, but they keep doing it. Maybe they give your number to people that are looking to hook up just because they think it's funny when these people reach out to you. And now you're put in this situation of temptation. And even if you say stop doing this and they keep doing it because they think it's one big joke is that friendship worth it is it worth saying but lord this is my friend i think there comes a point where you're like nah it's not worth the lake of fire i've preached the gospel i've tried but this person is just putting too many stumbling blocks in front of me maybe the issue isn't a friend maybe it's the route you drive home from work you see the same so-called gentleman's club every evening and every time when you see it with those lights shining bright the thoughts start coming in your head and you start thinking well what if i just park in the parking lot that's not a big deal. And you know, you're constantly thinking through these things. Just take a different route. Somebody's like, but that'll take 10 minutes longer. Really? 10 minutes? Come on. Is that worth eternal judgment? If that's what you have to do. If you can't solve this, you know, it's where every time you drive by, you're going to lust, then yeah, you've got to take a different way. Now, if you could handle it in the heart and then you never get tempted by that again, then fine. Save yourself the 10 minutes. I'm talking about if you can't, then you've got to be willing to get rid of it. Maybe it's not a route home. Maybe it's your computer in your house being in a private room. Maybe it's your habit going to bed an hour later than your spouse. Maybe it's access to streaming networks that make it easy to find illicit stuff. Whatever it is, take care of it. How? Well, go to bed when your spouse does, if that's what it'll take. Cancel your streaming services if you keep looking at stuff that you shouldn't. Now, again, if you could stop this without canceling it, then fine. But if you can't and you keep going back to this stuff, then get rid of it. Is watching your favorite shows worth more to you than God? Is it worth more than honoring your marriage rather than tearing that gospel tract apart in your heart on a daily basis? Move your computer into the living room if you have to, where the screen faces everyone else in the room, if that's what you need to do. The point is, be radical. Do what you have to do to guard yourself. Take care of any weakness or snare in your life that causes you to lust and will move you up that ladder of progression towards adultery. If you have to, get accountability software on your phones and your computers. Anything and everything to win this battle. That is what Jesus is calling us to do. And yet, it's even more than that, loved ones. All these things I mentioned are external measures. They're helpful, and sometimes they're necessary because they limit your opportunity to indulge in the lust. But as I said, even if I gouge my eyes out, I can still remember the things that I've gazed at. 
Even after Origen castrated himself, he still lusted. Even after the hermits of that time abandoned society for decades to get away from it all, in their diaries, in their autobiographies, they were still tormented in their minds by all these sinful thoughts. So even putting these external things doesn't really solve the problem if you're not dealing with it at a heart level. Okay, The external measures can only take you so far. And what complicates this even more in our day is pornography is now ubiquitous. This is one of the big battles. This is where the fantasies happen so much easier now. See, pornography today is everywhere and it's nowhere. And what I mean by that is it's invisible to everybody but you. You could access it anywhere. When I was a kid, that wasn't the case. If you were going to get pornography, you had to do the walk of shame down that gas station aisle with the dirty magazine, hand it to the guy, and his eyebrow goes up. Not that I'm speaking from experience, but I've heard stories. And the thing is, I mean, that is how, like, everybody would know. Or, or if it's a, a movie, there were X-rated theaters. People could see you going in and see you going out. There was no anonymity. But now... Now it is so different, and that's why the numbers and the percentages of people struggling with this are going up, because with complete anonymity, people can access it in a way that's undetected. So if we don't win this battle at the heart level, we are going to fail again and again. And that seems to be what's happening even in the church. The Desiring God website reports that over 80% of Christians are addicted, 80% addicted to pornography. The numbers are that high because of the anonymous access to that filth. And there is no excuse. You can't say, well, I'm alone. I have needs. No, that is not true. Okay? It is a choice of the will, a choice of the heart to put something else before God. And we just need to not put that before God. If we do not address the heart, then we will not stop gazing with the intention to lust. Paul the Apostle helps this with a very important verse, I think, in Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. See, what he's telling us is as believers, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. He writes God's law on our hearts, and it tells us we're God's sons because we're led by the Holy Spirit. That means in each day, in each moment, when each potential temptation arises, you, if you're a believer, you have the supernatural power from God himself to put to death the deeds of the body. That's what he's saying. Now, what does it look like? Well, first, it's the realization that you don't have to give in to sin in any case. Okay, you're not going to beat this today for the rest of your life. And what I mean is you're not going to like open up the Bible, read a passage and say, well, I'm never going to be tempted again for the rest of my life. No, on a daily basis, you're going to have to have this battle. You're going to have to deal with this. It's a war. But first start with the, the, the truth that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, that you always have a way of escape. There's always a way of escape. Nothing has come to that is not common to humanity that you could just say, oh, there's no way out of this. That's the first thing to understand. And then the second thing is in the case of lust, let's say you see something provocative. Well, in that moment, you change your thoughts. Look the different way, change your thoughts. That's like pulling up the weed. Now, how many of you have pulled weeds before? Pull up weeds. What happens a couple months later? They come back. And so whenever you pull a weed, you want to put a different seed in its place. 
Grow something good, and then that weed is not going to come back. That's why I'm saying there's always the righteous opposite that has to be involved. And so the temptation comes. Instead of looking, look somewhere else. Instead of thinking about that person, think about your spouse. Or for some reason, if that's not helping, some other godly thought of some other good thing. Maybe it's you you like mochi. Those little ice cream balls are so good. Whatever it is, you just put your mind on something that is good. That's a good gift of God that's to be enjoyed. And take your mind off the thing that is bad. Say that, no, I'm not going to give this an opportunity. Concentrate on something good. As I said, I think it should be your spouse um, and mochi if you need to, but whatever. Just something, something that is good and brings you joy. And I also would say, have some scriptures memorized for this. The one we just read, Romans 8.13, is one that I go to all the time. For if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit of God we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. If I'm in a moment of temptation, I will say that out loud to myself and even imagine myself teaching somebody it. Because then, you know, as you're trying to explain it to somebody in your imagination, now I'm fantasizing about something good, discipleship instead of fantasizing about something evil. The point is it'll take your heart and your mind off the temptation and it will place it on a righteous opposite. In so doing, you will have put to death the deeds of the body that day in that circumstance and it's by the power of the Holy Spirit because that's the only way we could do it. Ultimately, this is what we're commanded to do. This is how we win. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter three, verses five and six. He says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. What does he tell us to do to these? Put them to death. The old Puritans called it mortification of sin. Mortify it. That sounds cooler. Point is, just put it to death. Decide ahead of time that you're going to be like Job and you'll look away. Job 31 verse 1, he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How could I then look at a young woman? Meaning for him, it's better for him just to look away, you know, and and not try to admire because then that's where the thoughts will go. So decide that ahead of time. I'm not going to look with intent to lust. Also, decide ahead of time. When you get home, if your family's gone somewhere and you know being in the house alone is a big temptation for you, then decide ahead of time whatever discipline you need to do to win. If it means leaving all your devices in your home and you just jump in your car and you go get a cup of coffee or something, you figure that out. And you figure out how to win in that particular case. That's why I'm saying I'm not going to give you a list of rules. You got to figure that out. Okay, we got to figure it out with these principles. You know, we have to be disciplined people when it comes to this. Paul describes his life this way in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He's disciplining his body. He's he's being a disciplined person, living in such a way that he's able to overcome these things so that he's not disqualified. Okay, so that's the type of thing we have to do. It's training. It's training ourselves so that we will not be dominated by the temptations of the flesh. That requires a combination of both internal and external discipline. The internal is what I've already said about pulling weeds, planting the righteous opposite, being in the word, memorizing scripture, and using those internal tools when the battle's coming. But also, also, 
So again, don't let your mind go there. But also what you want to do is bring in those external disciplines that you need. Okay, the internal has to be there. You don't need all the external other than the ones that you actually do need. So bring those ones in. If it means you you have to cancel subscriptions or rearrange your computer workspace or put accountability software on your on your stuff, do that. I would definitely recommend that people get reliable accountability partners in the church. If we're intentional about this, we can have more and more and more victory over this common sin of lust. And you could guard your marriage by guarding your heart. This is what we are all called to do. And again, I think everybody struggles with this to some degree. Some people struggle more than others. But all of us are to take what Jesus said here and inscribe it on our hearts. And I pray. I pray that we will. If we do, then we will be increasingly faithful to the seventh commandment. And that's what we must all strive for. Yet our society, just like the society of Jesus' day, presents another way to commit adultery, a way that slips by the radar. Today, we call it no-fault divorce. People divorce and remarry, and then they assume things are legit with the new partner simply because they divorced the old one and married the new one. Jesus is going to disabuse us of that by taking a giant wrecking ball to it, um, but we will see that next time. That's going to probably be one of the most countercultural messages that I'm going to have to preach, but bring it, right? This is the word of the Lord. But for this morning, let's simply take what Jesus said about lust and how to fight it, and let's start putting this into practice. If there's anything you need to get rid of to win this fight, do it today. Don't say, well, I got to pray about getting rid of this thing. If you know this is something you got to get rid of to win, get rid of it today. Be urgent. Be, disip- be, be deliberate in this battle. We got to be diligent. And for any unbeliever, I'll say what I said last week. God holds us accountable for the sinful thoughts that we have, not just the sinful actions that we do. And God being an infinite, all-knowing, and all-powerful God knows all of our darkest thoughts. He knows our hidden actions. He is a righteous and a holy judge, and he is not going to look the other way on this stuff. Therefore, every time we have committed sexual sin in our hearts, God knows We consistently in our culture like to tell ourselves that we're good people. And I've brought this example up before. But what if we could plug something into your head and put on the screen all of your lustful thoughts for all of your friends and family to see? Would they still think you're a good person? No. How much more so God, who is infinite and infinitely holy and infinitely more offended at sin and perversion than we are. And yet he sees it in us, and in everybody all the time, okay? And so, we need a Savior. I say all of that because I don't want to lead you into despair without without telling you the way of salvation. Yes, you need to know you're a sinner. You need to know God is just. You need to know that if you continue on your path without Jesus, you are going to go to hell. You need to know that. But you also need to know what I said earlier, that the greatest love story ever told is that God himself decided to save his people. How? By becoming a man, the second person of the Trinity became flesh 2,000 years ago. He lived perfectly. He never sinned in thought, never sinned in action. He did it perfectly so that he could give the credit of that perfect score to everybody who believes. And then concerning all of our sins, he takes them all, he puts them in his account, and he paid for them on the cross. That's what he did for his bride. If you turn away from your sins and believe on Jesus as Lord, 
You're part of his bride. And that means he paid for your sins and he gives you his perfect score. But if you won't turn away from your sins and you won't bow your, your heart and your knee to Jesus, then you're not his bride. And you will face the judgment of God for adultery in the heart and murder in the heart and every other bad thing you've done. So don't walk out of here today still in your sin. Turn to Jesus and believe and be saved. We're going to pray and get ready for the Lord's Supper. And while we're praying, you could pray to God. You could say, Lord, uh, I'm turning from my sin and I believe on you, Lord Jesus. I, I, I believe <clears throat> that you are Lord Jesus and that, that God raised you from the dead. If you believe that and you confess it, you'll be saved. And then come talk to us after and we'll gladly tell you uh, what comes next. But with that being said, let's think uh, strong about what our Lord said today. And let's start uh, being radical where we need to be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.